Well, winter has finally arrived, wouldn't you say? Houston weather does crack me up. For seven months, for seven months, the temperature doesn't vary more than a degree. 95 and humid every day without fail. And then winter comes. Snow one day, 68 degrees the next. It was great to see some snow on the ground. As uh, someone who was born in New England, it does warm my heart. Uh, although I did get a kick out of seeing all the pictures. It's as though snow was this big novelty as everyone was taking pictures and posting them all over the place. Ah, uh, Houston. I take from my text this morning the first verse of the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock. Every day, the old men would walk down to the river. The Jewish ghetto was outside the inner walls of Babylon, but not far from the Euphrates River. As the old men wandered down the streets, lined with dried mud bricks, they could see the high mounds that formed the river's banks. Trees lined the high mounds to prevent erosion from the wind, and they would walk up the cruel step, the crude steps to the top. During the rainy season, the river would almost reach the crest of the raised banks, and during the dry season, they could look down some 20 feet below to the slow-moving brown, muddy water. There the old man would sit and stare. Inevitably, one of them would speak of Jerusalem, how much prettier it was than Babylon, how the weather was cooler, and how they longed, even after so many years, to be home. And they would complain about the state of affairs, endless complaining in a never-ending cycle. They knew they would die there in exile, as their fathers had also died in exile. In their youth, their fathers had held out hope for a return. They would talk about political developments of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but each year the city grew with more captive peoples. The great Entemenaki, the stepped pyramid, that rose some 300 feet in the air and was built to honor the Babylonian god Marduk, had long since been completed, and it was a reminder of the Babylonian dominance of the Near East. The old men who gathered by the banks of the Euphrates day after day knew better than to hope. The God of Israel had abandoned them. The mud-brick homes that they they had been forced to build as young men and crammed into were their past, present, and future. They held on to their customs and their religion, but some of the younger generation seemed more Babylonian than Israelite. Their fathers had been wrong to hope. They used to weep as they gathered there atop the riverbank. Now the old men just sat, cogs in the wheel of a great empire, sat and found enemies to complain about. If there's one thing that religious traditions of all types have agreed upon over the millennia, that life is suffering. It's not the the type of suffering you see in films or in shows like the Game of Thrones with their screaming torture scenes. Suffering of life is far less dramatic than that. As so many of us know, our bodies don't work the way they once did, cliche though it might be. Aches and odd pains bother you in ways you never thought were possible when you were younger. Some people have to struggle with chronic issues that we try our best to keep hidden from those around us. 
it's a suffering that comes from loss. The loss of loved ones or friends, that sense of absence that never really seems to leave us, at least not for long. The loss of activities that we used to do, activities you used to really enjoy but no longer can because of time or cost or the people you did them with are no longer around. There's the loss of material goods in an event like Harvey or from a change of job or as a result of a move. But also the suffering of life comes in much more mundane forms. It's the lack of excitement in the life of every day. Not that we don't enjoy aspects of what we do, but life becomes either so routine so as to lose all novelty, or squeezed amid so many things that need to get done that we just focus on getting through it. Over time, we accept that we won't make any real progress towards some far-off goal that we used to care about. So the work of every day lacks vigor, lacks that energy that we convince ourselves life used to have. Whatever form it takes, that sense of suffering never seems far away, like a slow drip. We can tune it out or mask it, but we keep hearing it, especially when things fall silent. Drip, drip, drip. The suffering of life can make us desperate for something to distract us, or anything to give life meaning, excitement. The other day, someone forwarded me a rant from a Trump supporter who purported to be a minister, have a PhD, and live in Texas. Now, I don't want to make too many snap judgments, but from looking through the email forward, I'm pretty sure that this guy was not a Christian minister. After all, he didn't mention God or Jesus once, and his views would be difficult to justify using the Bible. I also doubt he has a PhD, or if he did, he missed the class on grammar. <laughs> the ranting email diatribe is a genre unto itself, and those emails often ascribe fake authors to give more credence to the material. In any event, this rant was full of was, was pure emotion, venomous hatred towards Democrats, illegal immigrants, and some Republican lawmakers. And the email was a celebration that someone had finally been standing up for, to all the bad guys, and that person is Donald Trump. The author of this rant insisted that he didn't care about Trump's lying, his groping of women, his crudeness or insults, because he was fighting for him, and that's what mattered. Several things struck me about this email forward. Not only was it full of anger, brimming with it really, but it also had zero specifics of what President Trump had actually done for the author or those like him. It was entirely devoid of facts. But you know, when you don't want to confront the reality of suffering in life, when life's routines have lost their excitement, when you want a distraction from the sense of loss, there are a few things that pump you up, quite like the emotion for your team and anger at the enemy. That's not to say that this author and others like him have no reason to support Trump, but this forward struck me as something much deeper. It spoke to something spiritual, that type of irrational anger that, is, that, that comes from someone who is not at peace. It comes from a different place. It comes from someone who is unsettled, frustrated with the world. Close my eyes and see those old men of Israel sitting by the banks of the river Euphrates, spewing out diatribes against the Babylonians against the younger generation of Israelites who were adopting Babylonian ways, and against a God who would leave them there. The exile in Babylon, like our exile, was not torture. It was the suffering of life. And if those old men could somehow step outside themselves, 
they would realize that, that what they were most lacking was wholeness. Shalom. When the stories of Cyrus the Great and the rise of the great Persian Empire reached Babylon, most people ignored the accounts. What would happen if Cyrus showed up? Don't worry, it will never happen. Babylon is too strong, too mighty. But one man, whose parents had named him after the great prophet Isaiah, saw things differently. Venturing outside the Jewish ghetto in Babylon, he sought out, he sought out rumors and accounts of what was happening. He learned more of Cyrus. Then one day, during his reading of the old prophet Isaiah, his namesake, this man heard a voice from God. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term and her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Without waiting for permission from his elders, this new Isaiah found a fresh scroll and a pen and huddled by himself to write. He felt the stirring of God deep inside. The voice had to come out. It had to be heard. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and will carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. a word of good news from God. Healing was coming. Isaiah was determined to spread the word. The elders of Israel, stuck in their cycle of negativity, might reject his word, but he needed to let others know. I hadn't the others seen it. Why could this man, Isaiah, hear good news and ignore incendiary email forwards? Amidst the suffering of life, amidst the diatribes against others, how can we hear good news? How can we greet Christmas and its message? How can we be like Isaiah and not like those old men? We're stuck in a conundrum here. Our lives can so often get caught in a negative cycle. I don't care whether it's a constant stream of negative news or disillusionment in the work of every day. Too often, we are that old generation of Israelites headed down to the river each day and weeping over Jerusalem. If only there was another way some path to break the cycle, some way to find grounding wholeness, some way to hear and see the good news when so often others just see negativity. This past week, I settled in to read a book on the Desert Fathers. I ran across it while reading The Christian Century a while back and ordered the book. It's been sitting on my shelf, but something this week led me to take it down. In the 4th century AD, Christianity was rapidly changing. It was no longer a faith that was persecuted, but one that had become the center of power throughout the Roman Empire. Amid this main, mainstreaming of the faith, some believers thought that Christianity was losing its way. It was becoming too much beholden to the larger culture, too much a reflection of what the larger culture thought was right. The faith became a defender of empire and power rather than a voice against it. So people in the desert outside Alexandria and Egypt and later in Syria sought the peace of the desert to find God. They separated themselves from society and sought solitude, silence. The Desert Fathers have been critiqued for the stories of their asceticism. The hagiographies of their lives are full of accounts of extreme fasting and living with minimal goods. Some accuse the Desert Fathers of running away from the world and selfishly trying to find God apart from society. 
the actual accounts of their lives focus much more on their discipline, their intense focus on finding God and finding God-centered priorities away from the distractions of everyday life. His parents had named him Isaiah after the great prophet. His father was a teacher, a rabbi, for the exile community in Babylon. And he made sure the young Isaiah read his Hebrew so he could be a teacher also to the community. But from the beginning, young Isaiah was not like his peers. While his Hebrew classmates would sit at the feet of the old men and join them in their daily ritual of lament by the shores of the Euphrates, young Isaiah would go off on his own and wander the streets of the great city. In his solitary wanderings through Babylon, young Isaiah would speak with the people he met. Over time, he noticed something his elders had ignored, something he could see because he took time to himself. Whole communities, whole neighborhoods were like his. They were exiles, forcibly brought to Babylon against their will. They too longed for their homelands. They too resented the Babylonians. He could hear it in their voices and see it in their eyes. Unlike some of the elders, Isaiah knew the language well. He also knew that the apparent strength of Babylon was built on clay feet. In addition, in addition to talking with non-Israelites, young Isaiah treasured time alone. Rather than sit in the echo chamber of lament and negativity, Isaiah enjoyed silence. Silence and time with God. That time on his own allowed young Isaiah to foster a different view. When the other students read the Greek Hebrew scrolls of their faith, the only things they could see was the former glory of King David and Israel. Things were better in the past, they kept saying. But Isaiah saw something different. Like his namesake, he saw that Israel's defeat was partly their own doing. They had let the foundations of society wither and had ignored the poor and the spiritual health of the average Israelite. They had been too arrogant in their strength and not confessed their sins before the Lord. The stories of the Desert Fathers got me thinking. How often do we intentionally separate ourselves? How often do we seek to recenter ourselves through solitude, quiet? With the constant overstimulation of life in 21st century America, is there something we can learn from their example? I consider myself a fairly extroverted person. I love being with people. But when I have long days at the office, long days of being around noise and people and distractions and traffic, I get so worn out that I lose perspective. The most at peace, the most calm, the most centered moments of my life are usually alone. I crave solitude, silence. More and more I've discovered that if I want to find peace and wholeness, if I want to be able to confront the world and not be swallowed up by the suffering, and not overreact emotionally to what I find on my Facebook wall or in my, e in, my, in my email inbox, I need solitude. I need that silence. you ever feel the same way? But if we want to see, like Isaiah did, we need more than just solitude and silence. There's something else that we crave. Every day, the young Isaiah read his scrolls all the students would gather in the home of the head rabbi and study together. Ever since the exile, Israelites had increasingly become a people of the book. No matter what went on in their new life, the community was structured around the study of scripture and communal worship in the synagogue. For young Isaiah, this practice grounded him in a tradition that was larger than himself, larger than the exile, larger than the laments going on around him. 
ritual grounded him in God and kept him eagerly waiting. That's what made him a deeply, deeply religious person. Not simply his belief in God or knowledge of the scriptures, but his embrace of the rituals and regular worship of God. When young Isaiah read the text of old, he saw that Israel had been in the wilderness before. While the exile in Babylon was bad, it was not as bad as starving in the desert while on the great exodus. God had delivered Israel then. Could God not do it again? The thought of it buoyed him day after day. When the elders looked at their situation in Babylon, they saw abandonment and were filled with resentment. But when Isaiah looked at it, he saw opportunity for the work of the Lord to be revealed once again. It's quite fashionable today to criticize organized religion. Organized religion is full of hypocrites, they say. Looking at the support for someone like Roy Moore in Alabama, it's easy to see why people can be so critical. Trying to work and worship together with others can be messy. We keep running into other people, after all. And people have their faults, their own problems. But I would challenge anyone who, who critiques organized religion... I would challenge anyone who claims to be spiritual but not religious to find a sense of God, a sense of the eternal, without ritual, without tradition, and without other people. Even the Desert Fathers, with their removal from society, depended on organized religion. It was organized religion that gave them their Bibles. It was organized religion that called them to pray and that formed them in their early days and led them to seek solitude. The Desert Fathers were regularly interacting with other Christians. Christians read of their exploits, their devotions, and sought them out to discover more. People like the church father Jerome spent time in the desert and then returned to society to bring with them what they learned. Far from being outside organized religion, the desert fathers and those who wrote about them sought to improve and push organized religion to be more true to God and the tradition in the face of the temptations of society. If you want peace, want wholeness, is through ritual, routine, prayer, and reading, and devotion and service that we find. Solitude and ritual, silence, and regularized practice. These are the things that religious people have long used to find shalom, long used to find peace amid the suffering of life. And with that wholeness, that peace comes vision. Advent is notorious for its busyness. It's a season of ups and downs. The joys of being with family and the celebrations of the season combined with exhaustion, endless to-do lists, hangovers, and rapidly dwindling bank accounts. This Advent is particularly tough because of the state of the country and our divisions create more tensions and stress than normal. It's tempting to be like the old men of Babylon and to find some outlet of complaint and to muddle through by going to the riverbank each day. If we want to hear the good news of the season, if we want to be people of faith at a time when we and society desperately need it, we have to be like young Isaiah, who sought solitude and silence, and who prioritized ritual and practice, and who found a sense of God's peace. Make your Advent devotions a priority. Make silence a priority. You'll discover you're ready to hear the good news of Christmas. Christmas.